0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Good morning, everyone. Hello, I'm Jack Christides, and this is Billion Dollar Ballers, the show discussing the business of sports involving everything from the NCAA all the way up to the Major League. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in today to America's Web Radio and tuning into Billion Dollar Ballers. Uh... It's a great week. We're gonna dive right into it here. We've got some big news. Uh, for weeks now, everyone has been—if uh, you've been listening to the show—everyone's been hearing me discuss just how badly I want college athletics to come back. Uh, specifically, how how I want college football to come back. All of the negative impacts that have been uh, happening and and could potentially have continued had college football not returned. Well, uh, now we've hit a major milestone for that. Uh, I'm not sure if everybody's heard, but huge news. Big Ten football is back. Obviously, uh, one of the Power Five conferences, extremely big news, and and something I'm very excited for. Um, So today we're going to dive right into that, break down what you need to know, some general information about the return of the Big Ten, uh, as always, break down some of the financial impact, how it's going to lessen the burden on these schools that were due to lose hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Um, continue on. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about how this affects basketball. There was a basketball, NCAA Division I basketball, that is, announcement as well. So we're going to cover that a little bit. Um, and then looking ahead to to later in the show, we're also going to talk a little bit about the NFL, the MLB, uh, and some potential long-term financial effects of COVID. But all in all, great show today. Happy to have you with us, and let's get started. Um, so after what might have been the ugliest, most controversial month in uh, Big Ten football history, uh, where you had staged protests, in, in Ann Arbor, at Ohio State, Indiana, all over the place. You got uh, you got the conference heads and, and many of the players butting heads. It was a, a nightmare of a scenario, but Big Ten college football is back. The conference presidents and chancellors on Wednesday voted to start their season the weekend of October 24th uh, after considering new medical information and testing possibilities presented to them this past weekend. Um, and just a quick look at how that decision was made and what it means for the Pac-12. Now, if you'll remember, the Pac-12 was the other college football conference um, that decided not to play this season, to sit out entirely. And as of now, that still is the case. Um, and this does have a large impact on the sport as a whole, obviously. There are some good teams in the Pac-12, and it could definitely affect the college football playoff not to mention the millions and millions of dollars in revenue that those schools still stand to lose. Um, so it's still a fluid situation, but for today, here's what we know about the Big Ten. Uh, with their late October start date, the Big Ten can still finish their season and crown a champion in time to be considered for a semifinal spot in the college football playoff. Now, uh, as most people know, if you're a big sports fan, uh, several years ago, college football switched to that new playoff format where they have the semifinal game and the finals game. But in order for the Big Ten to be eligible to make that, uh, it has to be approved by the playoffs management committee. Um, now, that is something that's expected to happen. Certainly, I think that it's something that will happen. Um, The Big Ten's been a staple in that playoff for a lot of years. We had Ohio State in there. Uh, My hometown, Michigan Wolverines, always claim that they're going to make it and never do, but that's a story for another day. But uh, The reality is that I I think the Big Ten has a shot to make it into that playoff this year. They've got a lot of good teams, uh, and there's certainly a chance that they'll be in there, so we'd expect them to get approved by that playoff committee and be in there. Um, Again, that playoff committee is going to include all ten of the FBS commissioners and the Notre Dame athletic director, Jack Swarbrick, uh, of course, because Notre Dame is not in any conference, as we've discussed on the show before. Um, ACC commissioner John Swilford, SEC commissioner Greg Sankey, and Big 12 commissioner Bob Bowlesby will carry the most weight in that room. Uh, they've navigated their leagues through longer schedules because they, they never had this break that the Big Ten has had. Um, so there is a little bit of room for them to say no, but it would be extremely difficult, uh, even though they're probably not going to be thrilled that the Big Ten is playing a shortened season. Um, of course, there's no need to make the decision now, just like everything else in 2020. They can wait and evaluate the circumstances and decide. Uh, but it is great to have the Big Tens back. Now, what does this mean for the Pac-12? Uh, I mean, it's certainly hard for the Pac-12 to ignore this development. If, uh, if the, every other conference aside from them thinks it's safe enough, um, then I'm sure they'll be reevaluating. And it's not a coincidence that Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott waited to release the statement. Uh, He pointed to preventative government restrictions in California and Oregon until after the Big Ten finalized its plan. Uh, And this opens up a whole other bag of potential issues. Um, If you haven't seen by now, there are large wildfires currently in California and Oregon, Uh, and this just poses another roadblock for the Pac-12. The air quality people have been talking a lot about recently may not be good enough for teams to actually play these games. And when you couple that with COVID, which, as we know, is a respiratory um, virus, something that can affect your breathing heavily, uh, it's still unclear whether or not they'll even be able to return. Um, but I am hopeful, again, that the Pac-12 will revisit and uh, maybe maybe do something similar to what the Big Ten is doing, where they, they return later. Maybe they only play games in inside venues due to the smoke, or something like that. Again, the revenue that these teams stand to lose is just monumental, and we'll cover how much the Big Ten stands to earn back um, because of their decision to return to play in, in just a few moments here. But, again, a lot to unpack for the Pac-12. Um, quick note before we get into the the regaining of revenue for Big Ten schools, uh, one question that I've been getting a lot from a lot of uh, fans and even current players alike is 10 players who opted out of Big Ten season come back. Uh, the Big Ten had originally announced they were not going to return, and a lot of players simply announced that they were going to, to opt out and, uh, and not play any college football and either prepare for the draft or take that extra year of eligibility um, and, and return the following season. But if a player has opted out for the season but has not hired an agent, that player is still eligible and can return. Uh, NCAA conferences have made it clear that players can opt out without any repercussions to eligibility and to their scholarship. Um, but if they do decide to declare for the draft and hire an agent, however, this is where it gets tricky um, because technically those athletes would be ruled ineligible for the NCAA. Um, everything can be revisited on a case-by-case scenario and COVID certainly makes things slightly more interesting. So I would not be surprised if we see some people taking advantage of this scenario and returning to their Big Ten schools. Uh, But we'll see. The NCAA has not announced any specific rule changes or adaptions uh, given to the Big Ten situation as of now. Uh, But there are several Big Ten players uh, with with a lot of prominence who have opted out that the big names there would include Ohio State cornerback Sean Wade and Purdue wide receiver Rondale Moore. Uh, they're considering returns to their teams for the fall season, pending waiver approval. So we'll take a look at that. If they do return, it would be great. Um, really no update as of now. That's a developing situation. Um, what I would like to get into on the back end of this segment um, is how the Big Ten football restart eases the financial crisis. Um, although there are still glaring holes that exist. So Um, for people who don't know, Big Ten is college athletics' richest conference, uh, and currently the Big Ten is in the midst of a generational financial crisis. Iowa and Minnesota have eliminated sports. Purdue and IU are planning significant furlough programs, and some schools are talking about shortfalls reaching $100 million. Um, obviously, the decision to restart football is a huge, huge relief to its alien, the Big Ten's ailing department. Um, returning to football means reopening the conference's most lucrative revenue stream uh, at a time when guaranteed income is a total godsend. Um, however, I mean it's not going to completely end financial concerns. Um, and, and today, we're going to use Indiana University as a case study of sorts. Um, Indiana released a lot of their financial information when all this crisis went down, and and so we've been able to take a good look at that school um, and see just how much this week's news affected the financial forecast. Um, The good news is, perhaps the best news for these schools uh, in general, um, is that they're restoring the biggest piece of their athletic budget due to TV revenue. Um, In the fiscal year in 2019, Indiana University's media and television revenues exceeded $43.6 million. Uh, Now, that's roughly 34% of their total revenue. The previous year, that number was closer to 33%. But uh, in each case, it still came in larger than the next closest categories, contributions, and ticket sales. now, that's according to financial reports submitted annually to the NCAA and obtained um, originally by IndyStar uh, via records request. So thank you to IndyStar for those figures. So obviously teams are going to be making a lot more due to the fact that their TV revenue is coming in. Um, they can still get their contributions coming in. So both of those are great. And they're still standing to lose, unfortunately, tickets. Though. However... Um, There is some hope on that front. Um, It's really going to be a college-by-college basis. But as we've seen in the NFL, they've set some precedent to have fans in stadiums. So there's a chance to earn back even more of their resume. Um, Now you tie that in in with the fact that the Big Ten bowl field remains intact. Um, And you're looking at even more money coming back. The NCAA reports... Began breaking out bowl revenue as a separate line item in 2019, uh, and in 2019 again, to use Indiana University as an example, uh, Indiana reported more than 7.1 million dollars in that category. So that's 7.1 million dollars in revenue just from uh, just from bowl games. Um, now, Big Ten bowl revenue it, it's not predicated entirely on reaching the postseason. Uh, the conference actually pools its bowl revenues and hands each school at least some of it regardless. So it, it's a revenue-sharing system. Um, with that being the case, the Big Ten usually does very well with bowl games. Usually most of the teams in the Big Ten make a bowl game. Um, but it is uh, it is good for the schools that don't that they're going to still get that revenue share. Now, uh, with just eight weeks to complete eight games before the Big Ten title game, There is no wiggle room for postponements or cancellations uh, in terms of completing a full season. Um, But if everything does go as planned, the Big Ten might yet realize full television revenue uh, either way. Uh, Television contracts are normally negotiated uh, based on inventory. Uh, The conferences will promise broadcasters and distributors a certain number of games at a minimum to fulfill their obligations. And it really looks like they're going to hit that point. So, again, a full total breakdown on the financial impact for the Big Ten, um, just to hit the the key points again, in that they're going to fulfill their television contractual obligations. They're going to get that TV revenue. Uh, I'm sure contributions and donations may be down slightly due to the financial struggles a lot of people are having now, but you can still hope for some financial struggles. Uh, for some financial relief, rather. And uh, ticket sales are going to be the largest hit. Um, it's still going to hurt a lot. But very happy to have Big Ten football back. I'm sure the schools are as well. Money's flowing back in. And really one of the biggest problems caused by coronavirus that I've talked about uh, throughout the course of this show's history has uh, has gotten slightly better. So we're happy to hear that. Um, we're going to go to a short break, back with NFL football in just a few minutes.
0: Want to give your family or loved one the perfect gift? Then go online and check out the TornadoBodyDryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it. And you'll love having one in your shop. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Be sure to join us live every Tuesday at 1500 hours for the latest in gun news, gun products, gun politics, and other gun-related stuff. That's Tuesday, 1500 hours, America's Web Radio.
1: Welcome back to Billion Dollar Ballers. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. And welcome back to some coverage of NFL football. Uh, As we talked about last week, the NFL is back. They had a very successful return. Uh, One of the biggest sports, obviously, in America. And everyone is so happy to see the NFL back. Uh, Really the only league that never contemplated a shutdown. Of course, they did have timeline on their side, they were the last sport to return, kind of came on the tail end of coronavirus, but uh, came with some of its own challenges. We talked about how it was going to be interesting to take a look at the NFL returning to action in a time when we still have the NHL playoffs and the NBA playoffs going on, the MLB is currently playing, uh, and we've seen a couple of firsts. We've seen now a day where there's MLB baseball, NFL football, NBA basketball, and NHL hockey all on the same day, uh, and I believe some college football on the same day too. So it's definitely a time of first, a lot more competition uh, for a sport that usually dominates the airways by itself. Um, and perhaps at a time when you may have expected the NFL to have some of its best ratings Um, given how how hungry everyone was for NFL football in that first week. uh, That wasn't exactly what we saw. NFL ratings were a mixed bag, as Sunday TV audiences dipped by 3%. Um, it, It was definitely interesting to see, and if you were on Twitter, you could just see. I mean, there was a cult of NFL ratings doomers all over Twitter feeds, people who... Who are just so happy to see the NFL ratings go down. Um, a lot of people who are upset about all the protests that were going on. Again, last week we mentioned how there was booing during the Kansas City, Houston Texans game, um, and a lot. Of, I guess there are a lot of people right now who would love to see NFL ratings decline, um, and they got their wish this weekend. Now, according to the Nielsen Live Plus Same Day data. Uh, the NFL's four broadcast windows on Sunday averaged 18 million viewers. That is a 3%, again, a 3% decline compared to the first Sunday at play in 2019, uh, where a year ago at this time, the national and regional broadcast windows averaged 18.5 million viewers. Um, now, Fox did emerge from the first week of NFL action the clear victor, both of its TV showcases delivered higher ratings than they did a year ago. Uh, the, that was the Tampa Bay-New Orleans game, um, which marked an 8% lift compared to last season's Giants-Cowboys game. Um, and, of course, that was great to see. And the NFC North battle between Green Bay and Minnesota, um, they averaged 7% more viewers. So so what we're seeing here um, could just be the result of natural sifts in uh, – in the type of matchups that you were getting. We had some great matchups in Week 1 this year as compared to last year. Or it could signify a change as people uh, kind of rebel against the social justice justice things that are going on in the league right now. Only time will tell. I think it's a little too early to make any distinction about what the ratings necessarily mean. But it's certainly something to monitor. And, And I would say that you can expect a rating set if there is more conflict between NBA and NFL times, I mean, if you have the Western Conference or Eastern Conference uh, finals going on in the middle of an NFL game, or if you have even the NBA finals going on in the middle of an NFL game, it'll be interesting to see how those two affect each other ratings-wise. I mean, the the NBA viewership is down immensely. Uh, There are a lot of people who don't want to watch the NBA right now due to some of the protests and everything going on. Um, but, I mean, the NFL still carries the same weight. It'll just be interesting to see how this plays out. But ratings are certainly something to keep an eye on uh, moving forward. So uh, with that being said, we'll move on and, and discuss a little bit about the money NFL teams will lose per game without fans and why we've seen some announcements of changes Uh, with the plan to have fans in the stands. Um, And it really is an unbelievable amount of money. Uh, Somewhere in Dallas right now, Jerry Jones is sitting around, and I can promise you that he's not happy. Uh, I'm sure he's saying things and and sending out tweets like, the pandemic's a hoax, let fans in. Uh, If we die, we die. And the sad part is you can't even blame Jerry Jones. Uh, Because without fans, his 60-yard video screen at 18T Stadium uh, will will be empty. His franchise will lose $77 million per game, or $616 million over eight home games. Uh, That is, needless to say, a lot of money. Uh, The top five teams as far as losing money... Uh, as far as revenue loss without fans in attendance, and again, this will account for tickets, concessions, sponsors, parking, merchandise, the whole nine yards. Those top five are Dallas with 77 million loss, New England with 39, the Giants with 32, Texans 27, and Jets 27. Large amounts of revenue being lost because of having no fans in the stadiums. Now, back in May, Forbes did report that the NFL would lose an estimated $5.5 billion of stadium revenue. Now, that does account for 38% of their total revenue, so it's no amount to scoff at. It's a, it's a lot of money that the league stands to lose. And, and Dallas and New England, again, who are 1-2 and two on that weekly lost amount per game, uh, they're set to lose over half their total revenue. Uh, however, the Bills, Titans, and Bengals will lose less than a third. So so if you're wondering why that's the case, it, it's really just a breakdown of, one, how big the stadiums are, um, two, how well those stadiums can be filled. I mean, you look at the Bills, Titans, and Bengals, historically, some of the underrepresented teams fan-wise. Uh, also in some smaller markets, you've got Buffalo and, and Cincinnati. Um, they're not quite the same as Dallas. Uh, And New York so you can understand why they're not losing as much money Um, But it's still not a good thing still around one-third is still a large amount of your revenue to lose and these numbers are not Good news for players either uh, because players would lose out on the allocated 47 percent of football related income per that new collective bargaining agreement, which again, they signed in March um, so the players are going to be losing an alarming amount of cash per game um, because as their teams get hit, so do they. Um, so definitely not just an issue for the teams or the league. The players are also affected by this a lot. Now, for week one of the NFL season, the Chiefs and Jaguars were the only teams allowed those fans. Uh, they had between 14 and 17,000 fans in stadiums. However, in the next couple weeks, Seven other home teams have announced their plans to allow NFL fans in the Uh The Cincinnati Bengals, who again had no fans in their stadium for the opener, will have 6,000 fans uh, for the next two home games. The Cleveland Browns are going to have a max of around 6,800 fans for their first two home games. Dallas Cowboys, Jerry Jones, again, number one losers if they have no fans. Uh, they're allowing fans, but they haven't set a number. If I had to guess, uh, they do have the largest stadium. I think they're probably going to push for the most amount of fans. It'll be very interesting to see there. That's something I'll definitely cover in our next show. i um, looking forward to seeing how Jerry handles that. Denver Broncos, uh, no fans at their opener, but they will host 5,700 for their second home game. Colts are going to have a max of 2,500. Jaguars, a max of around 17,000. Uh, the Chiefs, a max of 16,000. And the Dolphins, a max of 13,000. So changes and I would assume that there will be more. I know I, I am a Lions fan, unfortunately, as I've covered previously in the show. And I do think that the Lions just recently announced they're gonna have a few home games where they allow fans. Um so so really the announcements are rolling out, and I think we'll see more and more fans in attendance at these games. Uh because one, the fans want to be there, obviously, and two the teams really do need the fans there in order to make up some of this lost revenue um, and to get their pe- players paid and to maintain salary caps into the future uh, and just for a whole number of reasons. So I definitely think that we're going to see more fans in the stadium. Um, now, moving on, in our, I guess I'll give a little preview of our next segment because it is kind of a complicated topic, and I think it will take me a little more than the time allotted for it. Um, So that does conclude our NFL coverage for the day. Hopefully covered some things you like. We're going to revisit the ratings next week. Hopefully have a little bit more um, about the trends and be able to give you a little more insight into what everything we're seeing means. But just know as of now that the NFL is doing everything it can to mitigate uh, the loss of revenue in their league. Hopefully you'll be able to go see your favorite NFL team soon. But moving on to a quick preview of our next segment, um, our next segment's is going to talk about MLB, and we talked a little bit last week about long-term effects that the NHL could have because of coronavirus. Uh, but it will not be the only league that looks, if not completely different, uh, fairly different moving forward. Now, there are a lot of changes discussed for the MLB, um, and we're going to break into detail more of what they are. But just know that you're really not going to see the MLB... As you've seen it, it won't be the status quo. There are a lot of changes being discussed. Um, And there's been some big news regarding the purchase of an MLB franchise. Uh, Maybe not a great MLB franchise, but a big name nonetheless. So again, we're going to take another short break right here and then dive right back in to some MLB baseball. Hey folks, this is Victor Armendares with the On Point with Victor show. Just to remind you, don't miss every Tuesday 2 to 3 live right here on America's Web Radio. And remember, I'm not angry, I'm just right. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear The Doctor's Conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to America's Web Radio and welcome back to Billion Dollar Ballers. Uh, Now, as promised, we are going to talk a little bit about some MLB changes uh, and a little bit about the long-term effects that COVID could have on the league as a whole. But I do want to start with some more recent news as the MLB's, uh, let me think about the right way to say this, the MLB's secondary New York franchise Uh, and if that upsets you a little bit just know that it is the truth that's how the majority of people feel the New York Mets have been purchased by Steve Cohen um now uh for those of you who aren't aware Steve Cohen uh did just purchase the New York Mets for the largest price ever in MLB history um now, uh, this is uh, this is something that was rumored to have been happening last year. It was mixed due to financial concerns and some issues of continued team control. Uh, As the Wilpons weren't looking, the former owners, the Wilpons, were not looking to sell their total control on the team. Uh, they did look for other suitors, only to end up back with the hedge fund billionaire. Uh, the deal values the Mets at two point four two billion dollars. Cohen will assume 95% ownership of the team, increasing his current stake from 8%. Uh, Now, the Wilpon family will retain control of that remaining 5%. Uh, The transaction does not include Met's regional sports network, SNY, which is a cash cow currently controlled by the Wilpon's sterling equity uh, with a 65% share. Now, again, this sale is the largest in MLB history, and giving the franchise's $391 391 million dollar valuation at the time of Wilpon's purchase in 2002. It's also the most profitable in terms of total dollar amount. So I thought what we'd do is we'd go through a few other MLB franchise purchase valuations um, and see just how much more this Mets sale was. Uh, in 2019, the Kansas City Royals uh, sold for about a little less than half of the price uh, that the Mets just did in 2017. The same could be said for the Miami Marlins. That was interesting as well. Uh, Seattle, again, coming in just a little over half uh, in just 2016. So this is nearly double um, most of those purchases. The only one that really comes close is in 2012 when the Los Angeles Dodgers sold um, and their valuation was a little over $2 billion. So um, certainly a monumental figure for the team to be valued at $2.42 billion. New York, obviously, is a huge market for any sports, especially, uh, especially baseball. Um, it'll be interesting to see how Steve Cohen takes the direction of the franchise now. Um, again, always competing with the Yankees or the Mets. Maybe they'll be able to make a big name. But as we've seen with, just this, with what just happened with the Clippers, uh, just because you think you're coming back, just because you think you're taking over the city doesn't mean it's going to happen. So all luck to the Mets, all luck to Steve Cohen, but we'll have to wait and see how that turns out. Certainly good news financially for the MLB. Um, moving forward, uh, some long-term effects of coronavirus on the MLB. Now we talked about the NHL last week, how that, could potentially be a completely changed league um, as we know it, and we may never see um, the league be the same again. Now, with the MLB, it it won't be as drastic as a change most likely, but there are some things that we could potentially be looking at here. Um, The MLB postseason will feature 16 teams this year after a 60-game regular season that was delayed roughly three months due to the global pandemic, uh, and, and that does make sense, uh, because this season, unlike any other, has been necessarily strange. Uh, teams have been decimated by injury. Players have opt out. It's been an unbalanced schedule. Coronavirus have, has had outbreaks during the season, hurting multiple teams and delaying games. Uh, the need for the league to recoup money at loss by shaving off 102 games from their regular season schedule, and there being no fans in attendance. Uh, these expanded playoffs, were certainly a necessary evil. Um, It's similar to the odd playoff format that we saw in 1981 that was put in place due to the player strike. Um, And you would think that this would be a one-time thing, as it was back then. Um, But if Rob Manfred, MLB's commissioner, gets his way, this will be permanent. Uh, Manfred told the Washington Post on Tuesday that an overwhelming majority of MLB owners endorsed the 16-team postseason before the pandemic, and the commissioner suggested it could be here to stay. Now, Manfred has gone on to say that he thinks there's a lot to commend. Uh, He thinks it's one of the changes that he hopes will become a permanent part of the baseball landscape. But if you just take this at face value, I mean, why would owners want a 16-game postseason? I mean, obviously, it seems like a money grab to me. Uh, the more playoff games you have, the more chances for your sport to be on TV, uh, the the higher you can charge the, the TV companies, the more te- television revenue you can gather. Um, now, the flip side of that is, does it hurt your product? Is your overall competition aspect worse? Does it damage your regular season because teams don't care as much about their record knowing an expanded playoff field? Means they might be able to get in, um, so that again is the downside. We're talking essentially more television revenues, eyeballs for a longer period of time, higher higher value on the sport as a whole versus uh, versus worse competition aspect uh, and potentially an even harsher decline in the amount of fans that enjoy uh, a sport that really, as we know, is is on life support as far as fan support. Um, But no matter what the the league's motivations are, what is clear is it would take a lot of what has already made baseball special and throw it in the garbage. Uh, Again, what's the point of a 162-game season if every mediocre team reaches the postseason? And if you want an ugly example of what could happen if this format remains, all you have to look for is what just happened uh, in 2019, under the current format of 16 playoff teams, where first and second place teams in every division and two wild cards in each league make the postseason, the 78 and 84 Texas Rangers of 2019 would have made the playoffs under this structure. We're talking a team that is six games under 500 making the playoffs. I mean, that wasn't a good team. Uh, the Texas Rangers were not a good team. They lost 84 games last year. For reference, if we're just wanting to talk about a, a shortened season here, look, that's like saying an NFL team that came in, let's say, third place, fourth place in their little division and, and went, I don't even want to say seven and nine. Let's say a team in the NFL that went six and ten uh, making the playoffs. I mean no one wants to see that. That's a bad football team. The same way that a baseball team that goes seventy eight and eighty four is a bad baseball team. I mean the playoffs are supposed to be an accomplishment. It's supposed to be something that you can look as a milestone and say, All right, well, we didn't win a championship per se, but we played well enough to make the playoffs. We know where we stand. What you're gonna have now is you're gonna have teams that had horrible seasons, thinking that they had good seasons because they made the playoffs, not making the changes that they had to had to. And over a long period of time, what you could potentially see is a lack of overall quality in the league as the bad teams are content with not being great because of the revenue that they're going to earn from making the playoffs. So I think this is an absolutely horrible, like a terrible idea. I hope that the commissioner reassesses this because I know it's a money grab. I mean, it's obviously a money grab. But I'm not even convinced that it'll get them the money that they want. I mean, on face value, it seems like a good idea. More games, more eyes, more TV revenue. And, and potentially you think you're going to increase your fan base over time. But from where I'm sitting, I just don't see them. I don't see this being a positive thing. I, I really don't. Um, but, again, it's going to be something that we're going to have to track. Uh, and they're really just trying to make up for lost revenue from this year. I get it. It was definitely a tough year. Um and and they were, they were looking at losing a lot of money. So I can understand why they wanted to make changes. I just don't think that this is the change that they need to make. All right, last topic MLB-wise here. We're going to jump into something that I recently picked up on, as recently as yesterday picked up on. Um, and I'm sure that it will get some more coverage into the future, and I'm sure some other teams may be doing what the Yankees are doing. Uh, and what the Yankees are doing is seeking a billion dollar bond refinancing as attendance is expected to be down for years. And this just points again to long term COVID-19 impacts as we kind of become more conscious of being uh, socially distant and more prepared for uh, not only a reemergence of this pandemic, but potentially new new struggles that our country may face. Um, So again, the Yankees are going to raise nearly a billion dollars in this new bond issued through New York City to firm up their financial position. Uh, The New York City Industrial Development Authority will issue exactly $923 million in pilot revenue refunding bonds, uh, which will refinance the remaining balance on the municipal bonds used to construct the new Yankee Stadium, which opened in 2009. Uh, these r- bonds are rated triple B plus by Fitch Ratings, uh, which, if you if you didn't don't know much about bonds, is a strongly rated bond. It does reflect the financial strength and fan enthusiasm for the Yankees, as well as the very low likelihood of a default. Um, if you're wondering why this isn't rated higher, um, it's because sports are subject to economic situations such as the pandemic. Um, which is what the ratings agency did note uh, in a statement released a few nights ago. Um, They said, quote, The strength of the Yankees as a premier franchise within the MLB and in the robust New York City market have resulted in a history of strong fan support through previous economic downturns. Uh, So I guess we could see several other MLB teams looking for loan refinancing. Um, It'll be interesting to see who does do that and what those bonds are rated because uh, while it might not seem like a huge metric, what that bond rating really means is the Yankees are a good organization. If you had the Cleveland Browns, for example, I know it's a different sport, but if you had the Cleveland Browns looking to refinance their stadium, I don't think they'd get triple B plus rating on that bond. Not only because the city of Cleveland doesn't have as much money as the city of New York, but also because... Historically, they're not a strong franchise, and I'm not just talking about their performance on the field. Uh, the fan support for the Cleveland Browns has often wavered. Um, they've actually never been successful enough on the field to garner good uh, sellouts in their stadium, and uh, and they've also moved locations several times. Several times, uh, they were in Baltimore for a time. Um, just as a result of their lack of fan support. So that that would not necessarily get as high of a rating as a bond. So if we do see this happen across other sports or further in the MLB, uh, I'm going to look at that bond rating, and 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 I think that we can all look at it as a community and say, all right, um, that tells the true strength of that franchise. So I'm actually somewhat excited to be able to take some time uh, and look into that. Um, so with that being said, We're going to go into our last short break before coming back and discussing some football, but not the American football. We're talking soccer after a short break.
0: Hey, folks, this is Victor Armanderas with the On Point with Victor show. Just to remind you, don't miss every Tuesday 2 to 3 live right here on America's Web Radio. And remember, I'm not angry. I'm just right. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Be sure to join us live every Tuesday at 1500 hours for the latest in gun news, gun products, gun politics, and other gun-related stuff. That's Tuesday. 1,500 hours, America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio, and welcome back to Billion Dollar And Welcome back to our final segment here, where we're going to cover... World football, yes, that's right. We're going to cover some soccer here. Um, a very interesting case, as we talked about previously, the economic uh, and financial situation of world soccer is very different than most of our American sports and very much more related uh, in terms of club-to-club club than our American sports. Now, uh, obviously, you get, a, you get a reason like the NBA and the NFL, and... And you have all 30 or 32 teams in the league, but in world soccer, U.S. excluded, what you have is a big network of independent clubs, all of these clubs tied together by a universal of rules and transfers and, and the like. Um, but that's exactly why when something like COVID-19 happens, it can entirely change the landscape of soccer on a worldwide stage. Um, in a way that we have not been able to see in the United States and in our sports, which has salary caps and, uh, and, and uh, drafts and things of that nature. So just gonna, to get right into the large big, the big headline that everyone's been seeing about soccer, if, if you follow that, is that COVID-19 is going to cost global soccer around, and we'll put this in U.S. dollars, although the figure is reported, in euros, it's going to cost global soccer $14.4 billion in 2020. $14.4 billion. I'm going to butcher this name, but Ali Ren, I hope that's how you say it. Ali, if not, I apologize. He chairs the FIFA COVID-19 Relief Plan Steering Committee, Uh, and he told readers that that figure is based on the current scenario where club and international soccer has resumed after being put on hold for three months in 2020. Club soccer globally generates between $40 billion and $45 billion annually, and that's according to FIFA, meaning that COVID has already wiped approximately a third of that figure out in 2020. Again, soccer has been hit very hard by the coronavirus pandemic, and it's created turmoil at different levels with some professional clubs facing very serious difficulty, especially one regarding their youth academies and lower division clubs. Now, youth academies and lower division clubs, to put it in American terms, is, is um, it's similar to like an MLB minor league team. If a minor league team below that even had uh, like these like thirteen year old teams. Um, So that's what exists right now in World Soccer. Now, FIFA did approve a $1.5 billion relief fund in June
1: to help national federations and confederations cope with the financial impact of the health crisis, and RUN revealed that 150 of the governing bodies, 211 member associations, have already applied for emergency COVID-19 grants. now, I mean, it might seem like a $1.5 billion refund is a lot of money um, to help national federations, but when you look at the amount of money that club soccer globally generates, um, which is between $40 billion and $45 billion annually, that's not going to do everything uh, in terms of reinstating all the money that these clubs and national programs are losing. Um, and some clubs are losing even more. A good example to look at would be Juventus. They were hit with a 71.4 million euro loss for 2019-2020. Uh, and all of this just points to the fact that the cost is too much for individual nations to mitigate alone. Uh, it's We're talking huge numbers that cover the football economy in its entirety. Um, and it can't be an exact figure, but we have to estimate the losses of 211-member associations. Uh, and under any scenario, that would be too great for FIFA to mitigate alone. So what you're going to see here is um, a huge shift in how the sport operates. We've already seen that transfer values, which are typically, if you're not familiar with the way that club soccer operates, the biggest players in the world switch teams far more frequently than many United States sports because they're not really tied into their contracts per se. Um, they normally have release clauses and transfer fees that can be paid. And it's why sports uh, teams that are the richest typically are the best because you have teams like a Manchester City or a Real Madrid or a Bayern Munich, these teams that are highly funded teams funded by multi, multi billionaire owners. Um, that have no salary cap and can simply spend as much money as they want to get a player. It's why we have hundreds of million-dollar transfers, uh, and teams just buy all the best talent and all the best players. Um, so it's really not a, a level playing field like we have here in the U.S., and that's okay because that's not the vision for the sport. But when something like this happens, it makes you reassess how much you're paying for all these players because there's no salary cap. The value of a lot of the players' contracts is somewhat arbitrary. They're really, it's like an open market scenario. They're worth what the teams are willing to pay. However, when something like coronavirus happens and the teams have less money to operate with, uh, you're looking at a situation where the value of players can no longer be considered as high. However, a lot of the, the transfer release clauses are still super high. So what I think you're gonna see is less movement between clubs than you have in the past, and it's something we saw in this last summer transfer window, as many fewer players switch teams than as is typically the case. Uh, we saw that only only the large clubs were squirging, Manchester United being one of them. They just purchased a player by the name of Sancho um, for a rather large fee. But we're seeing a situation here where Uh, One of two things can happen. Either total player movement will be slowed or we'll see a further separation between the clubs that are financially stable and those that aren't. Um, So it'll be interesting to track that and see specifically what happens. Um, Again, most of the club and international competitions have resumed around the world, but there could be more losses to come if COVID-19 continues to disrupt the soccer camp calendar in 2021. The critical thing is going to be whether a vaccine will be developed and can be used, uh, and whether there is medical and other means to fully contain and tame the pandemic. Uh, another aspect of all of this is, in the United States, we've seen things such as bubbles and quarantines for the players, um, but it's not the same as world football. The best teams are spread across a, a vast array of countries and even continents um, obviously focused in Europe with a lot of the great soccer being played. But When you talk in a national competition, you've got teams from all over the world coming together and playing. So it's not as simple as saying we're all going to quarantine, we're all going to go in a bubble. Uh, you, people are going to have to fly thousands of miles. People are going to have to travel hours at a time, go through customs, go through airports. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bigger risk in world soccer than it is in just local United States sports. Um, so we really have to be more careful and they're going to need more time for all of this to develop. So we can't rule out worse developments. Uh, this is a situation that's still greatly developing. Um, it is the biggest sport in the world, although it may not seem like it in the United States all that often. Um, soccer is the biggest sport in the world, and it's being hit potentially um, in some ways harder by COVID-19 than any other sports. So um, we're going to continue to follow uh, how FIFA handles all of this, how the individual clubs handle all this, and how we may see changes in the future to soccer as we know it. Um, Very happy to be able to get into that a little bit. Very similar to the Olympics that we talked about prior, where we could potentially see the pushback of a World Cup. Um, I don't know. I I don't want to be the one to say it, but we just have no idea what's going to happen in world soccer right now. So that concludes our coverage of soccer today. I did want to leave a little time at the end of our show uh, to talk about future topics that we're going to be discussing and and just the show as a whole um, and some of the economics of sports. So as we know, as we talked about, we're going to see some major changes in the NHL. Uh, We've talked previously a lot on this show about the UFC. And the UFC is going to be something that I'm going to get back to next week. Um, Obviously, that was the first sport that returned from all this coronavirus. It was the first sport to try out the bubble. And I really would love to touch in the coming weeks on how they paved the way uh, for a lot of these other sports to come back. And what I wanted to do, what I thought would be fun, and I'm still working on this project, but I'm excited to bring it to you next week, is how, how much money exactly have all of these other sports leagues made, and I guess you could think of it as saved, but I, I want to think of it as made because... If they never came back, they wouldn't have made any money. Uh, how much money have these other leagues made as a result of what the UFC was able to accomplish? I do not think that this is getting enough coverage across the media right now. I think that the UFC needs to be applauded. I think, I think they deserve an award. I, think, like, I could not think higher of the UFC right now. Um, incredible institution, extremely happy with what they've been doing. Um, we talked previously about the PLL. We're also going to revisit that next week. That is the Premier Lacrosse League. Uh, I want to get back into the idea that their their format of not having home cities. Uh, if you've forgotten, we have talked about it previously, but the PLL doesn't have home cities for their teams. They have team names, and and they they're they're kind of like a traveling circus. I mean, they go around playing these games with no home team. Um, to claim, and I talked about how I thought that was a bad idea in the past, but what we're going to do is going to analyze their revenues for their past season, um, talk about potential trends, and see if there's any pathway for that format to spread across other sports. Um, I guess would be no, nope, but we're going to take a look at it. And then we're also going to move forward and talk about, uh, with the NBA's next draft scheduled for um, far later than many probably expected. Their next season, they claim, won't start until at least after Christmas, or starting on Christmas. So we're going to have more overlap of these sports, and I just want to do a full breakdown of how how sports is so uniquely positioned to take over television, and that there often aren't over... I mean, think about it. College football is primarily on Saturdays, NFL is on Sundays the NBA and NFL seasons aren't at the same time. The MLB season is literally scheduled so that it doesn't interrupt the NBA season too frequently. I mean, that's a huge reason in a lot of these reports of why the NBA uh, can't change its season. Um, So it's gonna be interesting to see moving forward how these sports are gonna be continuing to overlap because of COVID, how that's gonna affect revenues and how that's gonna affect the greater landscape of sports and the economic impact of sports. Anyway, a lot to look forward to. Um, I think today was another great show. I hope you do as well. Um, and to all of those who, who are listening and fans of Billion Dollar Ballers, we thank you. Uh, and we'll be back next week with some better information. Uh, this has been Billion Dollar Ballers. I've been Jack Christides on America's Web Radio, signing off. See you next week.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the
1: AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.